You are listening to an ODI live event podcast. You can find out more about events and research by the Overseas Development Institute by visiting our website, odi.org. So, um, I think we're going to get, we're just going to go for three out of the many interesting things that you found out yesterday. So, we'll give a, we'll give a fantastic prize to the best one, but I'm not quite sure what the prize is yet, but we'll probably give you a, one of the croissants that's left over as the big prize. So, who would like to, so that's maybe one of the custard tarts. So, who wants to make a bid for a custard tart by sharing the most interesting thing they found out yesterday. There you go. One of those. Exactly. Even, it's out, it sounds even better <laughs> when it's said in Portuguese. So that is the prize. Um, anyone know or didn't find anything interesting? <laughs> All right. Yes. <laughs> Good point. Right. Anyone want to volunteer anything that they just they, they found that was interesting, significant? Um, pair. Oh, yes, but sorry. Yeah. Oh, no, I'll go to you as well. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, thank you very much. We found that we were quite surprised that the, the percentage of leakages in the pets were so high. We will expect around 30-20%, but that it was so high. And we found it could be quite interesting to try to follow up on this because there was mentioning of the fact that some of the money might not be misused, but located on other accounts. But uh, we found it a little bit hard to believe that all these accounts are just there idle and what was going to happen with them. So we found that it's necessary to follow a little bit up about where, where this money actually has been transferred because it will be difficult to account for them on other accounts where they don't have actually the budget for this amount of money. You, you couldn't believe that the brilliant no. PFM people here could have money just lying about. <laughs> okay, good. That's surprising. Ask the lady to Thank you. Um, uh, my friend told me that 1% of the allocation, government allocation, reaches the destination on the ground. Thanks. My, my main uh, revelation was that uh, Paolo plays the trombone. I think that's, a, that's <laughs> absolutely the most important thing. Because I, I play the trombone too. I've played for 50 years. You get the custard tart, yeah. But don't do it when you're playing the trombone because it will stick it up. Actually, one of the most interesting seminars I once went to was the, um, led by the head of the conservatoire in Scotland. And he played his trombone during his talk. Uh, and I keep thinking, my daughter plays the violin. I think next time we have a PFM conference, we should have a, things like violin solos and things to warm us up. Anyway, thank you for being here yesterday. I hope there, there are other interesting things and um, insights that you got from yesterday. We're carrying on today. We've got a fantastic panel, which um, Tom will introduce, and two further sessions and a closing panel later on. So um, listen carefully, participate, engage, talk to each other, and thank you again for coming. And over to Tom. Thank you, Simon. Um, I hope reflecting back on uh, yesterday has got everyone kind of feeling energised and looking forward to the rest of the day. Um, I want to start by actually taking us right back to yesterday morning. And um, one of the questions that uh, Mark set out um, in, in his introduction to the conference, which is, are, are we doing the best we can in thinking about how 
public financial management can support better uh, public services. Um, yesterday, we talked about some of the differences that affect what types of reform you might pursue, um, differences in the institutional setups of government, differences in the Ministry of Finance, uh, relationship with sector ministries, and so on. Um, in, this in this session, we're going to um, explore another kind of contextual difference that would affect what types of PFM reforms are appropriate, which is looking at um, how the different strategies that governments pursue in trying to reform public services might affect the role and type of PFM reforms that are needed. So public service reform is often focused on um, creating greater accountability for performance. And um, you, you can kind of classify or create ideal types of um, the kind of four main approaches to, to uh, governments have taken to, to trying to um, create accountability, greater accountability performance. The, the first one is a kind of top-down setting of uh, performance targets. Um, the second is um, decentralizing services to local governments to try and bring them closer um, to the people. Um, the third is increasing provider autonomy. Um, and that's also often associated with trying to kind of create quasi-market uh, incentives for, for service delivery through introducing choice and competition. So in this session, we're going to try and explore some of the um, implications for PFM reforms that are supportive of service delivery by looking at um, each of these um, different strategies. So for, for each, what kind of PFM reforms are needed to support the strategy, um, what different types of capacity need to be built, and what are the challenges and risks. Um, and I'm delighted to have a stellar panel um, to discuss these issues with, with us this morning. Um, our first speaker will be Ivor Beasley. Um, Ivor's a senior public sector specialist at the World Bank. Um, he's recently returned there from two years at the OECD in Paris, uh, where he coordinated the networks of senior budget officials on performance and results and on the fiscal sustainability of health financing. Um, he's worked on public financial management um, reforms with governments in Africa, Asia, and the Middle East. And um, for, for today, especially relevant, is that he's the author of the OECD Good Practices on Performance Budgeting and author of the 2016 book, um, Towards the Next Generation of Performance Budgeting, which if you Google that, you'll find it for download on the bank website. And I, I recommend that as an informative read. Um, we'll then hear from um, Say Abimbola. Say is um, Senior Lecturer in Public Health at the University of Sydney. Um, he's also a Research Fellow at the National Primary uh, Healthcare Development Agency of Nigeria. Um, he's Editor-in-Chief of um, BMJ Global Health. Um, and prior to his academic career, he was a medical doctor and spent seven years working to deliver um, health services and strengthen, strengthen health systems in Nigeria. Um, Lorraine Hawkins is Governor of the Health Foundation, uh, which is a, a health think tank here in London. Um, before that, she worked on health budgeting in the New Zealand and UK uh, treasuries um, and in their respective departments of um, health in New Zealand and the UK on health financing reforms and developing governance and regulation regimes for autonomous public health care providers. Um, she's also worked for the World Bank on these issues and continues to work for the, uh, with the WHO on them across a range of countries in Europe. Um, Central and East Asia and the Middle East. Um, and finally, we'll end with our discussant, um, Dan Honig. 
Um, Dan is Assistant Professor of International Development at the John Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies in Washington, D.C. And if anybody has a longer job title than that, I think they probably deserve a custard tart as well. Um, he's also a non-resident fellow at the Center for Global Development in Washington, and he's uh, also worked at the Liberian Ministry of Finance um, as well. Um, his research focuses on uh, management practices and performance of developing country governments and donor organizations. And in 2018, he published um, Navigation by Judgment, Why and When Top-Down Control of Foreign Aid Won't Work, which I also recommend to all of you as well. Um, so we're going to start off with Ivor. Ivor, can you tell us a bit more about the, the record of uh, performance budgeting in promoting accountability for results? Thanks, and good morning, everybody. Um, performance, I'm going to talk mainly about performance budgeting, but also a bit about broader performance reforms and how performance budgeting fits into those. Um, performance budgeting, as I'm sure you all know, is a very widespread and significant PFM reform. It's been adopted by almost all OECD countries, and I'm sure many of you are working with uh, developing countries that are either introducing it or thinking about introducing it. Um, and in principle, it should support better public finance management and more effective service delivery by linking financing to policy goals, increasing transparency and accountability for results in the presentation of budget documents, um, and promoting evidence, supporting evidence-based policy making. So, in a way, providing an effective counterweight to those very strong political forces that typically drive the actual resource allocation process. So, uh, just a few words about, how, I mean, how does performance budgeting achieve this? Um, I mean, the essential elements are reorganisation of the budget into programmes from line items or... So a reclassification of the budget, um, inclusion of performance indicators in key budget documents um, so people can relate performance to the provision of finance, um, hopefully different type of budget negotiations between the Ministry of Finance and the Ministry and the line ministries in which performance is part of that discussion. Um, and then at a more micro level, relaxation often of line item budget controls giving program the appointment of program managers who have more decision making and autonomy over how to use resources um, and more accountability for performance backed up often by external auditors looking at performance doing performance audits and program evaluation um, so that's you know the theory of how it should work um, this is from the most recent OECD survey of uh, looking at why people introduced performance budgeting and also what they felt the results of it were. So it's interesting to compare them too. And if you look at this, you know, transparency and accountability, which I think go together essentially, uh, were the strongest motivation for introducing it. And they also seem to have been regarded by most of the OECD countries as having been broadly effective in this area. A lot has been uh, said about um, the potential for uh, improving resource allocation and prioritisation. This is 
was, I think, the originally one of the main bases on which these reforms were advertised and sold. The interesting thing is in, in that area, I think it's been much less effective. It's had much less influence for the reasons we were discussing yesterday about, you know, the available resources that you're dealing with are perhaps at the margins. There are all these so much inertia in the budget system, political pressures and things, so that, you know, the analysis doesn't actually, is not really driving the, the resource allocation. Um, an important question when thinking about this is, you know, when we're trying to uh, think about accountability, is accountability for what? And to whom? Um, because accountability goes in a lot of different directions, and uh, performance budgeting is perhaps more effective in supporting some aspects of this than others. So, you know, this is the accountability. And, and performance budgeting reforms themselves <coughs> come from different origins, and this is an important thing to understand, is who wants it, and what did they expect to get out of it? Um, in... There are a lot of examples of where the original impetus came from Parliament. You know, France, for example, or the GPRA in Congress in the US, the Congress. The, the Parliament <coughs> wanted to know, you know, what was being done with the money. The existing presentation of the budget was opaque. So that was very much an accountability and transparency type of reform driven by the Parliament. Um, there's also, you know, in many instances you see... Uh, it you being used to strengthen um, the accountability of the executive, of the civil service to ministers and to the centre of government for performance. Um, at a more micro level, you also see it being used to try and strengthen the accountability of programme managers to senior management and, and to uh, line ministers. Um, and I think... As we were discussing yesterday, history and tradition matters quite a lot in terms of how people conceptualise this and want to use it. Um, uh, I mean, in contrast, uh, let's say France, Australia, the United States, the emphasis was very much on accountability to the parliament and on uh, accountability to the executive. Um, I worked on uh, PB reforms in Kazakhstan, and the conceptualization of what that was supposed to deliver was quite different. You know, there they the Ministry of Economy, which was in charge, principally saw it as a means of ensuring that uh, presidential decisions and the strategy of the government, the long-term strategy, was driven down to the level of budget decision-making. And accountability for them, the question came up persistently, you know, how do we punish people who fail to achieve the targets that have been set by the government. Um, so how has PP performed in practice? I mean, I, Andrew disguised, described it yesterday as a kind of, I, I, was it catastrophic reform initiative? Um, <laughs> I mean, it looks great on paper, but people have found it extremely hard to implement in practice. Um, the tendency has been to uh, have too many programs and activities, to try and systematise it, if you like, across the whole of government. And if you're not careful, if you let the consultants get hold of it, they will, you know, develop a very elaborate framework where, you know, everybody has to have, 
you know, a set of uh, a set of active subprograms, activities within that. Each of them has to have an outcome-based performance indicator, and people end up, you know, uh, uh, like. Uh, how many angels can you fit on a pinhead, you know? I mean, it becomes a, a nonsensical exercise to produce this document. The effort involved in producing this vast document is enormous, and then typically people take no interest in it afterwards. You know, or maybe they look at it again at the end of the year and have to say why they did or did not achieve these objectives. Um, so it's generally been a big make-work exercise. However... OECD countries have still, you know, almost all the countries that have done it have persisted with it, and they've modified their approaches, mainly simplifying them. Um, and uh, they've kind of scaled back their ex expectations to focus more on presentational and performance-informed processes, um, and more focus on managerial use of performance information. So what's the experience in terms of accountability specifically? I think we've seen that legislators who maybe drove this initiative have very narrow or limited interest in actually looking at the results. They're much more interested in the allocation. Um, linking managers' pay, etc., to performance has generally not worked. Um, more generally, there are few consequences if targets are not met. Um, and this is because the relationship between financing and results is much more complex than people imagine. So, you know, career experimented with automatic cuts to budgets if the performance wasn't met, but they've retreated from that. Um, and if you put too strong an emphasis on these results, then it encourages gaming behaviour. So, finally, I'd just like to say that, you know, performance budgeting, I think it's important to think of it as part of a broader performance type of ecosystem. Um, people have, you know, put the budget at the centre of performance reforms, and I think that's actually the wrong way round. People have loaded too much on, too many expectations onto performance budgeting. That performance, as Alan Schick said, you know, uh, a government that uh, you can't uh, budget for performance if you don't manage for performance. So ideally, you want a gov broader government-led commitment to performance-oriented reforms. You know, in Australia and United States, for example, they, they don't have performance budgeting. They actually have a government performance policy, um, and that's what drives the process. And then the budget processes follow and support that. Um, and I, I think that's essentially uh, the right way round. Um, And I think it needs, you know, elements of that are uh, performance orientation driven from the centre of government. Um, the the central government provides a coordinating role, particularly to deal with these more difficult performance related, these complex issues like improving mental health or child poverty or something like that that require coordination across ministries. It doesn't just belong to one ministry, that objective. Um, it requires more performance orientation in human resource management. Um, uh, you need to look at performance-based contracting as part of this. Um, improving strategic planning. This is often, you know, uh, uh, 
an initial weakness that prevents good performance budgeting is there aren't good performance, there aren't good <coughs> strategic plans in the ministries. Or if there are, they're totally unrelated to the resources that are available. So finding some kind of uh, tool to bring those two together, like a strategic budget plan or something like that, is uh, something that needs to be thought about. Um, and then around that, there's the programme evaluation, um, the availability of data, and the availability of skills to actually support this. This is very important because it requires a different kind of level of analytical skill. Okay, so that's it for me. Okay, brilliant. Thank you, Ivor. So um, I think we've, we've had an incredibly informative discussion of the kind of potential but also limitations of... Um, a reform like performance budgeting and how it needs to be part of a set of reforms that's attempting to kind of drive reforms from from the centre of government. So um, now we're, we're going to turn to um, Say, um, who's going to tell us a bit more about how, um, rather than driving reforms from the centre of government, how decentralisation lo to local governments might improve health services and what implications this might have for PFM reforms. So Say, over to you. Thank you, and, and thanks to ODI for, for having me here. Um, it's, I felt very much like a foreigner here, um, and not just in terms of my um, nationality, but also in terms of where I come from disciplinarily. I'm a health person. I'm a very, very health person. <laughs> I feel like I've been parachuted into it, so from health land to PFM land. <laughs> and and um, the most striking difference, I think, between where I come from and where I, I get a sense that you are at is um, our attitude towards complexity. My sense is that in health, um, it is um, often the case that complexity is where inquiry begins. So you start by actually acknowledging that things are complex and unpredictable, and you work from there. And my sense since yesterday is that it's the other way around here, that sort of start from it simpler premise and you sort of get to a point where you say, oh, things are complex. So it's, it's, um, it's, it's quite um, fascinating to observe. Um, and, and there is, I suppose, um, um, uh, no other place uh, that better exemplifies how complex things can be than decentralization. And you'd find in the literature that a lot of the conclusions of papers uh, and position statements is that it's Results are mixed, it's, uh, you know, it's not clear. Um, and what we did with the paper that I'm about to give you a, a snapshot of is, is to begin from acknowledging that things are actually mixed, unpredictable, and to ask the question how and under what circumstances will things work well or not in, in decentralized setting. Right? Um, and I thought I'd begin with this um, slide because it sort of shows the different levels in, in an abstract sense at which things could be decentralized. And I've shaded some um, boxes there. Uh, and the shaded ones are sort of just assume they are the rich states or districts or communities, right? And the F slash C is the facility slash community. So before decentralization, there is um, an inequitable distribution of things anyway, right? So, so often decentralization jumps on top of something that is inequitably distributed, and, and then it accelerates that distribution or adjusts for it depending on the kinds of institutions that you work in decentralization. Right. Um, and so we, um, in, in this synthesis, we identified three sets of mechanisms by which um, decentralization sort of um, has its effects on health systems. The first one 
uh, we titled Voting with Feet, uh, after um, Charles T. Booth's um, theory. The second one we titled Close to Ground, which sort of reflects an information effect of decentralization. And the third one we titled Watching the Watchers, after Guarding the Guardians, um, which is a well-known um, phrase in um, political science. Now, the first mechanism, which is the sense that people move from place to place, um, uh, is tied to the idea that when things are decentralized, uh, the fact that resources would move from one place to another and people would move would generate a kind of political action. In health, that doesn't necessarily happen. However, things still move, right? Um, and what moves the most when you decentralize are skilled health workers, um, patients often, and often with, the with their funds, um, uh, they move with their funds to places where there are higher resources. Um, and often it is the movement happens from poorer jurisdictions to richer ones. And it's often worse when you have a rich neighbor. Right? Um, however, if and when there is a kind of universal coverage system in which if you move to a richer neighbor, you get free services, then often the poorer jurisdiction um, benefits from having a rich neighbor. But we know that that's an exception. So typically, the poorer jurisdiction will suffer in terms of efficiencies, in terms of resources, things move to the richer side. Um, and in this kind of situation, it is very important um, to have and uh, to retain some equalization measures. And in many instances, the effectiveness of that will depend on um, the number of layers that funds have to travel through, which again speaks to the discussion yesterday. Um, the, 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 the more the layers, the greater the levels of attrition, and then the more the likelihood that the funds don't reach where it's supposed to be used. The other sense is, again, reflecting discussion yesterday from Uganda, I think, the way you calibrate those equalization transfers. So, so if, you, if you calibrate it to, to reflect inequities, existing inequities, then, then perhaps it would work better than if it was calibrated sort of evenly or by some simpler formula. Um, again, often when you decentralize, uh, one of the effects is that the higher level of government loses its ability to redistribute. And you find this a lot in, in healthcare when skilled health workers could be distributed, redistributed by the district or the state. When decentralized, they would often lose that ability and, and you'd find uh, skilled health workers move from poorer to, to richer. And there's another very interesting effect that the literature sort of reflects very strongly, which is spending close to home, right? And home here is usually the capital of the state or the capital of the district. Um, so it ends up being the better advantaged part of the jurisdiction because there's a tendency for, um, for political decision makers to spend closer to home. And also, often when there's a poorer jurisdiction after decentralization, they tend to spend more on, uh, on services that could generate revenue, which um, we know in health drives inequities and is um, inefficient, ultimately. The second mechanism is what we described as close to ground. And what, one of the things that we were trying to do here was to separate um, the accountability effects from the information effect. Right? So this is the information effect. In other words, you can see outcomes, results, without necessarily being driven by accountability in that when you decentralize and, and the decision makers are closer to the ground, they are more likely to use information from the ground to make decisions. And they're also more likely to receive feedback from the ground in a way that's not necessarily accountability, but 
result in some kind of often better decision making. So you find often, again in the literature, that um, when things are decentralized, close enough to the ground, there's greater spending on equity promoting services, often preventive services, health promotion services. Um, and this effect is usually supported and facilitated when and where there are local <coughs> health boards, often at the district level, or where there are community health committees that are involved in decision making at the community level, often primary health care facility level. And also, this comes with the flexibility to hire. But again, depending on how, how close to the ground decentralization is, you can get an effect in which the, the, a lower level of government is only able to hire low-skilled workers because they don't have the capacity to hire, higher level, or people with capacity are just not available where they are, and people move in there because they are poorer jurisdictions. And also, this often comes with nepotism. Right? So you have a situation in which it is the brother or the sister or the aunt of somebody who gets hired, often without skills for the job. But because things are happening at a very low level and at a very small scale, you get that kind of effect. And when you look at the literature in terms of economies of scale, when you decentralize close to the ground, um, the, the, the optimal efficiency point is somewhere in between, consistently, in health, right? So you, if you, it, closer to the ground, it gets, it gets really inefficient. And if it's high, it's also inefficient. But again, the services and the responsibilities that are efficient versus inefficient with scale vary with service, right? So, for example, you want service delivery to be as close to the ground as possible. You want procurement to be as high as possible, right? And, and you want the level of organization of the health system to be somewhere in between consistently. Um, and then this uh, points to the importance of districts. So often when you decentralize, there's a tendency in PFM, I've noticed, to, to want to move things to the facility, bypassing the district, typically. Whereas there are very important functions that the district serves. Uh, and if you, if you define the district in this sense, you are losing the kinds of efficiencies and redistribution that could happen and usually happen at the district level. Um, so the third mechanism is watching the watchers, which is a sense of multiplying accountability relationships when you decentralize. Like more and more people are looking at, at one another. And here you have this tendency for um, uh, higher level governments to be able to hold lower level governments accountable if the constitution allows or if the system allows that to happen or if there's a budgeting arrangement that allows that to happen. But that could often result in um, a diversion of attention away from quality of services and to protect um, equity and to protect quality, often you would require some level of bottom-up accountability structures. Again, local health boards, community health committees become very important there. Um, and often, absolute dependence on sort of transfer from, from on high weakens accountability at the bottom. Right? So you get more corrupt practices where districts or states rely predominantly on funds transfer from the top. And again, in many instances, you find that districts become conduits uh, between levels of government um, and they in turn become neglected. Again, similar to spending close to home, you find there's a lot of monitoring close to home as well. So accountability would often work closer to where the decision makers live and work, rather than where often services are really weak and distant from the center. Um, and the final point here has to do with the, the tendency for, uh, to lose solidarity between um, subnational entities, where some are inefficient and some are 
um, efficient. Often, the efficient ones are the ones who actually are richer than the ones who are inefficient, and that would often create tensions within countries. And Italy is a very, very good case of this in, in terms of health. So um, I've highlighted a few take-home messages for PFM people. Again, I see you as completely other people. Um, so it's, it's important to play, pay close attention to districts. Um, I, I, I can't say that um, well enough. Um, it's important to pay close attention to local accountability structures, local health boards, community health committees. They are often very con consequential. In many instances, they are absent. You don't see them because you're not looking for them. The more you look for them, the better your, abil your ability to see them. Um, it's important in PFM also to, to remember that often... The problem is not so much public finance management as, as financing itself, right? So it's important to recognize what is the icing and what is the cake um, in, in, in deciding what interventions to implement. And also it's important to remember that efficiency and, and accountability as defined um, from a distance typically um, is only one dimension of performance. Right? There are other dimensions of performance and you need redundancies in the system, especially the kind of redundancies that decentralization gives you. Um, again, everything comes back to context. Um, if there's any lesson from all of this, it is that um, you have to avoid, we have to avoid traveling models, the idea that one thing that works in place A would work in place B. To, to begin with the premise that it will not work in place B and what do we need to do to make it work in place B rather than assuming that it will work. Thank you. Thank you, Say. That was great. Um, I, th I, think, I think what you say around the, the need for stronger districts, for the importance of local accountability mechanisms, chimes very closely with some of the points that were that were made yesterday as well. Um, so we'll now turn to Lorraine um, to speak about the opportunities and risks um, in promoting provider autonomy. Thank you. So um, the reason I think Tom thought that this would be a good um, item to add to the agenda for the session is that, um, the, is that the advocacy for autonomy, greater autonomy, managerial autonomy for public health care providers is becoming a hot issue, but uh, uh, in practice, in many countries undergoing health system reform. It was a hot issue in a bunch of countries that reformed health systems in the 1990s and early noughties. Those were mostly upper-income countries and upper-middle-income countries. As countries, um, uh, middle-income and low-middle-income countries are growing, um, as the advocacy for UHC is rolling out, um, more and more of those countries are now embarking on a process of, of, of somewhat similar reforms. And the issue of, of, of whether you should give providers autonomy as part of those reforms is becoming a large issue. But I think it's worth noting that there is another driver for, for giving um, healthcare providers, particularly hospitals, big hospitals, autonomy. And that is the sheer complexity of managing big hospitals. Um, and so what you see long before new public management and PFM reform became an issue, what you see in many countries is that big teaching hospitals or university hospitals, tertiary care hospitals, were often given some form of autonomy. Countries did it in all kinds of ways. Where they didn't do it, you find that those um, hospitals found ways to be autonomous because it was the only way to provide the services they wanted to do. So, um, the um, where's my next slide? The um, if you look at uh, the complexity of um, 
accountability and incentive relationships in a hospital. Imagine the hospitals in the oval at the in the centre of the diagram there. Um, you uh, 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 these days, um, as well as. Uh, from the outside, you have the government regulators and politicians setting policy for the public hospital and, and, and determining budget allocations. You have suppliers um, that ha have a huge influence, often a corrupt or semi-corrupt influence, on the hospital. And that supply influence comes via the doctors that prescribe and use equipment. Um, patients, obviously, the media and civil society. Um, Increasingly, where health financing reform has taken place, there's a purchaser or a health insurance fund that's paying the hospital on, for services or outputs and maybe introducing performance-related pay. The hospital also has to deal with health sector uni unions, often very, very powerful, and professional bodies, the medical associations or whatever, that all, are also very powerful and carry out a self-regulation role. And those bodies um, regulate the workforce underneath the influence of the chief executive. On top of that, the owner of the hospital that may be different from the funder. You may have a local government-owned hospital, for example, a university-owned hospital, for example, that receives its money from national government or a health insurance fund. So you've got all of these different influences in play. That means that the chief executive of the hospital is balancing many different demands for performance diff uh, on different variables. Um, and the complexity of the hospital is driven by the fact that they also have at their front line um, skilled professionals who drive the way resources are committed. So managers can't direct doctors in most hospitals. Um, and what that means is that to manage a complex hospital, the the, even the manager themselves is operating a deconcentrated or, or decentralised system and trying to devise their own set of um, soft incentives, financial incentives, you know, vertical line management incentives to try and get some kind of handle on what's going on in that hospital. Um, so autonomy um, from public financial management controls of a traditional line item sort and personnel controls is often comes along as recognising the reality that in complex services like this, nobody in the Ministry of Finance or the, you know, um, any external accountability agency has any hope of knowing what's going on in there and influencing that um, in relation to all of the demands for performance, um, and even the manager doesn't. The broad health financing reform issue is um, that the objectives of these health financing reforms that are sort of spreading around with the UHC, um, uh, Universal Health Coverage Agenda, um, often involve establishing a purchaser-provider split or a separate social health insurance fund. When these, the, these um, purchaser agencies want to pay hospitals on the basis of outputs or performance, typically, um, and they want to use financial incentives of one of the levers for getting providers to perform, often they are using contracts that may also create consumer choice or um, administrative you know, performance targets that they monitor. So you've now got this new player, the health insurance fund or purchaser, trying to use a mixture of non-financial incentives, financial incentives and consumer pressure to get the hospital to perform. If those kind of reforms are introduced in a system where your public financial management system over the hospital controls line item budgets and personnel, ex ante at quite a detailed level, um, it's, and if 
you've got a traditional public sector budget unit model in which all financial surpluses at the end of the year are withdrawn back to the Treasury, carry forwards are you know, negotiable and often not available. If you've got that kind of financial environment, the, that, that healthcare provider doesn't have much in, ability to respond to the financial incentives being created by the purchaser. Therefore, the advocates of these purchasing reforms come along and advocate that as part of the reform package, you need to autonomise your providers. Many of the issues and risks around creating autonomous providers, however, are analogous to the ones that um, arise for decentralisation. So um, we can take as read all of, you know, all of that list of the mechanisms by which this autonomy reform is supposed to work um, for decentralisation, also supposed to work for autonomisation. The same risks, more or less the same risks arise. The one difference is with an autonomous provider, instead of having um, locally elected officials um, overseeing the controls and accountability regime and influencing resource allocation, typically the autonomous provider will be given a board and that board will, um, what's usually recommended by the health policy fraternity is that that board should combine both technocratic um, individuals who are good at exercising governance in the way that a board of directors of a company or a charity would do, together with some um, community patient citizen participation to provide um, that bottom-up accountability. So that board is dominated by technocratic voices and if it's selected well, that board brings together both top-down um, um, accountability and bottom-up um, accountability in, in the board. So, and that board, if the board functions well and is selected well, it can mitigate some of the risks that you get with if you've got governance by locally elected politicians. On the other hand, if that board, if your board selection process goes badly, it can be worse. You know, it can be. You know, there are countries where autonomous hospital boards are relatives of the minister or you know, a range of people who um, have political influence to get a kind of um, sinecure. Um, and in worst cases, the boards are dominated by people with conflicts of interest from industry, um, suppliers and so on. So the risks, um, risks and challenges of, of autonomy in public hospitals are uh, all of the risks of decentralisation plus sum, and the plus sum is when countries make hospitals autonomous, in some instances, usually as a result of lobbying by doctors, um, autonomous providers are allowed to set their own prices um, and charge patients. And, then, uh, and so you've got unregulated prices. You may then have policies that say they should still provide free services for the poor, and, but if those free services are not funded, um, by the purchaser, the, the, the provider, as an autonomous provider, is going to underserve the poor and concentrate more increasingly on, on paid services that have a, a profit margin. Second big risk is this, this whole theory about how things work in the health, uh, should work in the health sector relies on having a purchasing organisation, health insurance fund, that's strong and strategic, technically able, has good data and all of that. In actual fact, many of them are weak. Capacity issues in creating a good public purchaser are immense. Um, and I think the capacity constraints are, are, on purchasing are, 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 are one of the reasons to be cautious about autonomising provision. Um, third one, 
um, as mentioned, that there's usually a governance body, and sometimes there's also, as in this country, a, a unit of the ministry or an agency responsible for monitoring and the finances and performance of the autonomous providers. If those mechanisms, the board mechanism or the monitoring unit mechanism, are weak, you, um, there are many countries where autonomous providers um, exhibit loss of financial control, some where there's a rise in corruption um, because of the, of the relaxation of input-based controls and centralised procurement. Um, the um, boards, uh, if they're weak, may not be on top of that, may not get the information from management that needed to carry out their role. Um, uh, other risks are, are that many countries get stuck in what I call a dual organisational mode. A common path of reform is public hospital or primary care facility isn't getting much money from the budget, not enough to provide drugs and supplies and even keep the lights on. They start charging fees to patients, either officially or unofficially, um, and uh, uh, then that creates um, problems for access. Along comes a universal health insurance scheme or a donor program that starts reimbursing the hospital for those user fees. So what you now have is a provider that gets two tracks of money, one from the budget, based on traditional line items, personnel controls the works, and another track of money that's paying, reimbursing a user fee for each time you see a patient or a patient receives a test or a drug. Um, and those two tracks of money are usually subject to different roles. The user fee or insurance payment is often um, very subject to much more flexible rules. The provider has autonomy over those. They're often managed in a separate account, a revolving fund or whatever. Um, and so you've now got a, 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 a sort of dual system of input controls over here for some resources and this kind of a set of output-oriented governance um, and accountability mechanisms with much more resource flexibility. Um, in that environment, it's very difficult. Most countries go through a period when nobody has a handle on overall resource use by the provider. Um, you are also creating incentives, uh, incentives that operate on the, a small amount of variable costs, but you're not using incentive mechanisms to tackle the biggest um, resource allocation issue in health, which is almost always personnel, because um, that's subject to traditional budget controls. So, uh, in this environment, many countries get stuck in that um, dual organisational mode. Final risk is um, uh, that uh, if each provider is, is treated as a separate, organize, a separate autonomous organisation competing with each other, you often lose strategic direction over the whole facilities network and whole system. Um, and every hospital or provider is out for themselves. You may get chaotic investment and hospital expansion, a medical arms race in high technology to attract patients and doctors, um, and then co the converse is that you get shortages of staff and resources in less profitable facilities and medical specialties. Um, so that's quite a, quite a bunch of risks um, that lead me to a, a sort of takeaway message about, account uh, about autonomy, which is... It's something which I think in countries with weak capacity needs to be taken in a phased way where you develop the um, incremental steps and in greater managerial flexibility in step with capacity improvement in management and development and capacity improvement in the governance and oversight mechanisms and the purchasing mechanisms.
Doctor Say said, it's very complex. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Uh, thank you, Lorraine. Um, <clears throat> I, I think... Sorry, thank you. I think just to, just to highlight a couple of things, I think um, Lorraine and Say have both highlighted the kind of managerial capacity that needs to be <coughs> built for reforms, not just kind of in the central ministries managing reforms, but um, in districts and hospitals if reforms um, are going to uh, succeed. And I think this is something that's kind of often neglected. You know, yet yesterday a lot of the PFM reforms we were talking about were talking about processes that a Ministry of Finance controls. So now we've been talking about how you need to build capacity for program management in line ministries, about building capacities within districts and hospitals. So I think this is a, 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 a kind of clear message that needs to be needs to be thought about and that, that um, the, the PFM community at least needs to needs to engage with. Um, but before we move on to uh, questions from you, um, we're going to hear from our discussant, Dan Honig. Um, I hope Dan is going to provoke us into thinking a bit harder about how we understand the whole concept of um, accountability for service delivery. So, Dan, over to you. Yeah, thank you. Um, <clears throat> uh, you know, th and thanks for having me here. Uh, thanks for letting me be a part of this uh, super stimulating event. And thank you for three really thought-provoking presentations. Um, you know, when... Um, uh, when Paulo had this role uh, yesterday, he uh, confessed that he would he had been called on you know at quick notice as a substitute in a in a footballing sense and uh, and i i don 't have the same uh, background here, but I did find myself thinking as I listened to these remarks um, how much it made me rethink my own initial reactions to these presentations and to your work as I thought about my prepared remarks. So in some ways, I find myself responding in a almost fresher than Paulo uh, yesterday sense. Um, and so I thank you for your, uh, for your kindness in, uh, in interpreting my model thoughts. So you know, let me start uh, with uh, a super exciting place, I know. That is the, uh, the title of this panel, right? Which is accountability for results. Uh, Tom talked about greater accountability for performance. Uh, and I want to point out that in that simple sentence is uh, potential ambiguity about what is meant by the simplest word in that sentence, that is for, right? So we could mean greater accountability for performance in the sense that what we are looking for, what, what we are looking for is more information about what has occurred, about what performance is, about reporting performance, about knowledge of what is going on, right? Uh, and in that way, using that uh, to kind of report on what's happening to inform actors, right? The other is that accountability could be in service of performance, in service of results. The accountability technology could itself be forwarding the process of achieving the results. And I want to uh, note uh, that I think it's not at all incidental that everyone on this panel has embraced, in my view, the second definition of, the, of those two possibilities, right? That is to say, the question here is how are the things we are calling accountability in fact, forwarding the effort of getting stuff done and making stuff better in the real in the real world, um, and I think you know the, I think the um, the question of how you do that, you know, we saw kind of different approaches to how that might be done, right? So performance budgeting, as I understood it, as as articulated by Ivor, um, is a sort of top down attempt to do that, right? Uh, it is, you know, this, uh, the framing paper has this great, for this conference, has this great phrase, uh, 
targets in terror, right? Um, and in some ways, I heard you describing a, a slight targets in terror kind of world of sort of looking for ways to sanction, um, you know, of information being provided, um, to the answer to to whom, which I think you rightly frame in as an important question we forget, was largely actors above the system, right? Uh, legislators, uh, executives, et cetera, right? Um, <clears throat> and, you know, that, that begs the question of when that accountability up is in fact in service of forwarding the results rather than reporting on them. Uh, you mentioned as an aside the kind of um, mental model of the US government's government's performance and results act. Uh, and uh, I think it's not, uh, not trivial that the first purpose of the government performance and results act as stated in the law that creates it is not to improve performance. It is to uh, increase public confidence in the performance of the government, right? It is to seek legitimacy. It is to provide information so that people uh, know what's going on um, and like us more, not so the actual performance of the, of the activities uh, betters. And I find myself wondering, uh, as we think about performance budgeting, when performance budgeting is in service of, uh, of legitimacy seeking and what that means for its tractability to change and what, what might substitute to it. Um, for it, I should say. So, you know, I think, you know, before, uh, so let's say three days ago, Dan, when, when that Dan prepared, uh, prepared remarks on this battle. So uh, three days ago, Dan thought that uh, when we thought about uh, decentralization and your, your presentation say, you know, we would be thinking entirely about what, what I might have called sort of bottom up client based channels, right? Um, but, you know, what, what I think uh, what I think you really interestingly help us decompose is this notion that um, the things that got called accountability reforms, first, they sometimes work merely by providing more information to local providers, right? Not by changes in power, but not by changes in who's seeing what, right? Merely the act of decentralization means there is more local information that is gathered by the people who are doing the work, and even if no one ever looks at anything that they produce, any report, holds them accountable in any way, we might get performance gains, right? And so <clears throat> the accountability route of decentralization is only part of why we might imagine decentralization might improve performance. And it's easy to fool ourselves. It's easy to think that if decentralization is working, it must be because some accountability channel has improved, has improved things. Um, and that in turn maybe begs the question of what is accountability and, and what can it be? Um, in, uh, in a paper that came out last year, Lamp Pritchett and I argue that we should make a distinction between uh, accounting-based and account-based uh, accountability. For those of you who know Lant, you should recognize a very Lantish uh, style of phrase, turn of phrase in that, the, absolutely his terms. And so, you know, and I think, uh, but I think obviously there is something there, which is to say, uh, to what extent do we think accountability works or should work through uh, counting things, reporting things through an information channel that then takes that information and shares it with other people who can, uh, who can, uh, in, in a kind of accountant style, hold people, things, projects, et cetera, accountable. Um, 
you know, whereas account-based accountability is making account. It's justification. It's explanation. It allows many more things than what can be sort of quantified or reported or delivered to be part of the accountability system. Um, and, you know, when I hear, uh, as you say, this very, this very complex world that, uh, that Lorraine paints around autonomous, uh, autonomous health facilities, I hear a kind of, a, I hear a system in which some actors are engaging in entirely accounting-based accountability, and some actors are engaging largely, if not entirely, in account-based accountability, and then there's a mix for a bunch of other bunch of other providers, right? Uh, where accountability involves some counting and accounting and quite a lot of like thinking and talking and seeing what's going on kind of accountability, right? And I think uh, it's quite important to, to put that on the table. Uh, I also find it pretty interesting that in a conversation about accountability um, and one where we talked both about decentralization and autonomy, there was not so much conversation about um, about what the people who have the autonomy, right, actually, in fact, want to do, right? Uh, and other ways that, that that autonomy or decentralization or changes in management structure might themselves create accountability not up nor down, but kind of across, right? That is professional networks. We're talking about health, you know, you talked about self-regulating uh, professional communities, right? So, you know, but that wasn't necessarily, at least it wasn't explicitly framed as a kind of accountability, but of course I think it is and, and ought be. Um, and it strikes me that when we think about these, this question of how we get accountability for results, uh, you know, perhaps one of, to betray my uh, perhaps economist roots, say, I, I also am off taken with, you know, sort of simplifying assumptions and building straightforward models that I then make more complex. Uh, but it strikes me that um, the kind of stylized finding that both uh, you and Lorraine are putting forward, that the right answer to who has control is also one of uh, for what, right? You know, you broke apart sort of service delivery versus procurement yeah. versus other things, right? And that the right answer is often in the middle Right, because of tensions between what I would call the information channel um, as a straight performance measure and the information channel as an accountability measure, who sees the information for what and how that changes things, um, is, is to me an interesting finding that I think would not come out of a kind of pure PFM directed, um, directed sort of approach um, to thinking about um, what accountability can, can, can and should be. Um, so, you know, in closing, uh, let me just say that I think the, uh, I think one thing that really strikes me about these presentations is that, uh, as Lorraine put it, accountability development doesn't just mean more reporting in all of them. Indeed, it may mean less. It, mean, it might mean less explicitly in both Lorraine and Say's cases. Ivor, I know you've written before about, about precisely those, uh, those topics and in other fora as well. Um, you know, and this question of when we will get more accountability in service of results, when results will be forwarded, not by increasing our kind of monitoring technology, which I think is the PFM instinct, uh, but by decreasing it, uh, is one that I think uh, potentially deserves substantially further thought. Thank you. Dan, thank you very much. I think, you know, it's important as, I think, PFM specialists, we tend to think of accountability in 
targets and counting things and so on. And I think it's important to think about whether that is the only form of accountability and what other forms there are, and whether trying to promote that form of accountability can drive out other forms, which may also be valuable, which I think is echoed in um, some of, um, say, in Lorraine's remarks about needing to combine different forms of um, bottom-up and top-down. Um, but now I want to open this up to um, questions, so um, over to you. Okay, we've got one over there and one here. Hi, thanks for some really interesting talks. Um, I'm Rebecca Simpson. I'm a postdoctoral research fellow in economic history. I had a, um, a question for Say. Just, I really liked your your schemata and the sort of framing of this. Um, one thing that sort of seemed to be lurking behind all of this, though, is is politics, right? And particularly changes to to uh, electoral systems that come with decentralization. And the presumption in a lot of the models is that electoral voter behavior will also change when people are voting at the local versus the national level. So I just wondered how you're sort of bringing that into your thinking and whether or not you see sort of failures there as well, right? Where voters are not playing the role maybe that have been, has been allotted to them in, in sort of holding local politicians to account in a different way. Thank you. My name is Kenneth Mugambe from Uganda. <coughs> I, I actually I think I have a comment uh, on Sayer's presentation uh, on the question of decentralization. Uh, of course, when many countries decentralized, you know, their health service systems, the whole intention was uh, to improve service delivery and, of course, enhance accountability. Uh, but uh, in many of our countries, what has actually happened uh, is that uh, there has been some move towards recentralization. Now, in my own country, we initially we uh, provided money, for example, for procurement of medicine, you know, up the lowest level. But what we actually saw uh, was more drug stockouts, and uh, actually the medicine not reaching, you know, the beneficiaries. So what we've done is to go back and actually recentralize procurement of medicine. And of course, the situation has somehow improved. Uh, so the question is, uh, you know, how do you really strike a balance? And of course, there is also uh, some move uh, towards actually recentralizing even the human resource you know, to ensure that the human resource is managed, you know, directly from the center. So I think those are some, so there's actually that tension. So the question is, you know, how do you, you know, strike a balance between, you know, uh, improved service de delivery in a decentralized framework, but also, you know, avoiding the frustrations actually that come with decentralization, you know, to enhance service delivery. Now, I wanted also to hear from Evie uh, on the question of performance budgeting. Of course, we are one of the countries uh, which are moving fast towards program-based budgeting, as I said yesterday. Uh, now, the challenge, I think, is uh, how do you uh, implement a performance budgeting system in a typically traditional, you know, service setup where performance management is actually not, you know, entrenched in the system? I would want to hear your views and thoughts about that. Thank you. Okay, I'll take one more in this round, and then we'll go for a second round. So. Over here, please. Good morning, all. My name is Louis. I'm from Nigeria. Typically, when we do this uh, analysis, this kind of discussions or discourses, we often end with statements like, the answer is somewhere in the middle, you know? <laughs> and that leaves a lot of gray areas and room for 
for abuse and uh, I mean the black box is it's always there. I understand why why that is so because of the human human element and the human factor. Of course, political influence and all kinds of that. But I would want the frontier of research to advance so we can have a higher level of precision. I mean, whether we can develop models or, or, or calibration mechanisms in such a way that we we minimize the gray areas and we are able to make more more firm, firm decisions. I mean, we can increase our level of decision making to be more uh, more more accurate. I'm just wondering whether we could we could think along that line. Thank you very much. Okay. Um, thank you. So. Um Say, so I'll ask you to start with the two questions that were directed to you, and then either I think you have a question um, on, on how do you start performance budgeting when there's no performance culture. Um, and Lorraine, maybe if I could ask you to take that last question, which I think is, you know, how do we go beyond context matters to saying something more specific about what reforms might be appropriate? So say first. In, in fact, I would, I would also take some of that and, and join it with the question from here, because I think they are the same question, um, in that the, where, you, where you calibrate, the, where in between is for each service, uh, or for each component of the health system, for example, will differ. So, so your experience in Uganda very much matches the literature, right? It's not just in Uganda, but often you need to recentralize for, for procurement and for some human resource management. It's, it's consistent from country to country. And I think that is how you solve the in-between problem, right? That you, you can observe cases and cases and cases and you see regularities between them. And that's one of the things, I couldn't go into all the detail of the paper that I presented, but if you read it, you'd find that level of detail in it, which sort of gives you an idea of the kinds of things um, that work centrally and the, uh, some that work more close to the ground uh, and kinds of things you want to leave in the middle. So, so there's a sense of that, I, I think it's, I won't leave it to people who model, because uh, I don't necessarily trust them. Um, but I'll, <laughs> but I, I, I'll say, study cases from case to case, country to country, experience to experience, and you start to see regularities. And that will give you a lot of information about what, what and where and when to centralize and decentralize. Um, the question about politics, I, I, I thought I would answer that as a Nigerian. Um, The, so in Nigeria, for example, um, the po political system works particularly um, at the state level. So state governments are the federating units. So b beneath the state government, there's pretty much very little, in fact, there's very, very little democracy going on. So state governments can control local governments, which are sort of districts. And so the politics at the district level is really not electoral politics. It just reflects what happens at the top. And my sense, and there's been a lot of discussions around local government reforms that would allow some level of autonomy at the local government level, but until you have that in, in Nigeria, and I can't speak for many other places, you can't begin to talk about the impact of decentralization on electoral reforms. However, when you move into the communities, one of the things you observe is a, a more organic sense of accountability and, and responsiveness between people. So I, I did a lot of work studying community health committees and how they organize and how they work and what they do. And I've, I was really, really surprised by the level of responsiveness and, and accountability that works between community governing entities and health facilities at the primary health care level. So I think at some level it would, it, it would potentially work if the system allowed it to work. 
Um, I, but it would depend on the institutions within each country, I think. Over. Um, on the question of how to approach it in a context of, you know, not an overall performance orientation in government, I think you have to first of all obviously ask the question, what, why are you doing it, and what do you expect to get out of it? And I think if you manage expectations, you can probably achieve something uh, by introducing performance budgeting. Um, I mean, I would focus first of all probably on issues about transparency and accountability. You want, I would, I'm making some assumptions here, but assuming that you want to move towards a more performance-oriented public sector where there is budget discussions involve, you know, consideration of performance, um, you need to consider what information is actually available. Um, and uh, I would probably start with, you know, reclassifying the budget to put it into a programmatic format um, and trying to identify some performance indicators, as a small set of performance indicators that are relevant politically, um, that, you know, there's, there's the motivation to follow those. Um, I would also, you know, focus on, you know, a smaller number of ministries that perhaps have the capacity and the data to support a kind of perform a move towards performance. And I think health is interesting because it's probably the most data-rich sector that there is. And you will often find that people are already thinking about performance. You know, in health sectors, you often have forms of performance budgeting going on, you know, within hospitals or whatever, DRGs or whatever. A lot of mechanisms have been developed, contracting out, uh, using performance criteria. So people in that sector will probably be far more aware of these kind of performance criteria. So I'd start with a sector like health or maybe education. Education may be more difficult because it's probably decentralised. Um, so the central, the, the minister, central ministry won't have so much control. But, you know, areas or, or road construction or delivery of justice or something like that, those would be the, the sectors where I would probably start. Um, and then just putting the information out there and using that as the basis to start a different kind of conversation um, during the budget setting process um, where, you know, performance becomes part of it. Um, I, th I think the only thing I'd add to um, Shaya's comment is that um, I think that I think on a number of issues about, about whether you decentralise or delegate to an autonomous provider particular functions in the health sector, um, but drawing on multiple country um, case material, that is the only, that's, that's the best methodology we have in this field, um, there, there, are, there is a reasonable degree of consensus about um, things that work and don't work. Um, and and uh, uh, there's a reasonable de degree of consensus, for example, about what's the minimum population size you need to run an, uh, to support an efficient primary care facility, secondary care hospital, blah, blah, blah. So there's a bunch of things um, about what functions are best carried out at different scales. There's a bunch of evidence about where community 
um, participation and feedback mechanism works and where it doesn't and why. There's um, quite a lot of case study material around different models for getting the best out of combining central and local decision making and drug procurement and supply chain management. Um, and uh, so, I mean, on a number of the questions that arise in relation to decentralisation and uh, um, delegation to autonomous providers, I think there um, we can give firmer answers, but I uh, I haven't seen them written up as a set of recommendations. I think, uh, knowing the literature, the case material, I think there's more scope to form, form, uh, formalise those, and I actually think there's a demand to try and do that. Um. Okay, thank you. Um, next round of questions. So I'll start with, um, there's one at the back first, and then um, we'll take these three, we'll take um, four in this round from there. Thanks. Uh, Martin Williams from the University of Oxford. Um, I wanted to follow Dan in talking about the title of this session um, and thinking about how we've been approaching it. And Dan kind of picked on the four, and I want to pick on the accountability. Um, and it strikes me that you know accountability means so many different things in different contexts, right? So it can mean rewards and punishments for doing the right thing or the wrong thing. Um, and if we change the session title to promoting, promoting rewards or punishments for results, we would probably be having a slightly different conversation. Um, it can also be about information and transparency, as Ivor talked about, right? And if we said promoting information for results about what the public sector is doing, uh, maybe we're closer to this kind of account-based world that Dan is talking about. Um, and I wonder whether the word accountability is obscuring some of those differences um, and whether it's right to be using the same types of management tools, whether financial or otherwise, for rewards and punishments for people who steal money, um, as well as people, managers who are introducing innovations to try and improve results. Um, and so I guess my question is, you know, is should we even be talking about accountability for results? Is accountability the, the best word to use to organize that conversation? Thank you. Um, so it's a question for for Sai. Um, I I visited last sometime last year the offices of um, the National Primary Health Care Development Agency in Nabuja, and in the boardroom they have this beautiful but startling maps of the immunization coverage um, in, in Nigeria. And I mean, the, the first thing that strikes one is the variation between the north and the south. Um, and then in the north also, there are variations within states um, of local healthcare facilities that are doing a lot better than others. Um, so in, in some facilities, the coverage is 14%. 34%, and, and some are doing also quite quite well. I mean, w do you think the problem is related to the states that have too much power, um, or are there other things that are going on? I mean, why this variation within states um, in the immunization coverage? Thanks. <coughs> Thanks. Uh, Paolo De Renzi from IBP. Um, so mine's not really a question to the panel, it's more a reflection based on what I realized was a little bit of a slight sense of discomfort lingering through most of yesterday for me. And it's, it started from uh, Mark's fork in the road and partly 
from Andrew's, you know, different models. Do does do we have the right tools, and do we have to adapt them to make them more, uh, put them at the service of service delivery, or do we need a new, different way of thinking? And my sense from yesterday was mostly that most people in the room felt that, you know, maybe for the PFM community, there's a bit of a comfort zone thinking, you know, we've done all this work over so many years. Surely, it must be of some use in terms of supporting service delivery. So everybody sort of starts from that assumption that we kind of have the tools. We've, you know, built them over a couple of decades at least, if not longer. So we really have to find the key to kind of adapt them and make them... Um, serve the purpose of, of improving service delivery. But to me, this, this panel kind of crystallizes, uh, reveals the fact that probably we need to sort of switch tack. And, you know, when I hear Sai talk about decentralization and what needs to happen at the district level to promote accountability, when I hear about uh, Lorraine talking about how hospitals are managed and what does it mean for hospitals to provide better services and so on and so forth. It, 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 it brought home to me the fact that probably we're not really... The PFM, the, the PFM community that works with ministries of finance is not really thinking... Uh, it, it's not really providing the right answers to the questions that come up from service delivery points from the local level, from the large service delivery units, even from districts who are responsible at the, at the, at the middle level. And you know what, what sort of Ivor says about how do you set up performance budgeting systems at the central level, I don't know, it makes me feel that we're not really asking the right questions, we're not really providing the right tools, we're not really engaging with the real challenges that uh, people at the service delivery point feel and how PFM systems can support them in some way. And of course, the key point there is that accountability for results and thinking about performance in service delivery is only partially to do with public financial management systems. And so PFM needs to sort of recognize that it has a much more limited role and recognize that it has to really uh, forget many of its own assumptions and much of its own history in order to work together with other parts of the public sector and listen more to what's happening at the service delivery point to really make itself relevant for improving service delivery. I may be exaggerating, but I don't know, that's kind of something that came up quite clearly for me in this panel, thanks. Okay, thank you, Paolo. <laughs> So um, what, what I'm gonna, <laughs> what I'm gonna do is we're, we're, we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna go five minutes into coffee time. So I'm not gonna take another round of questions. There's there's lots more people that want. So I'm gonna take the lady at the back, then Simon, then Catherine, and then we'll go back to the panelists. And please, if they're remarks rather than questions, please keep them short. Not like Paolo. <laughs> It's, this is related um, to what he said just now. Um, I, am, uh, I am pleased that I saw the word ecosystem mentioned here. Uh, Albert Einstein said, we need higher levels of knowledge to solve problems created by lower levels of knowledge. We need higher levels of knowledge and we need to look at 
system dynamics to solve problems. I am coming from the north of Sri Lanka. The last 10 years, the people have been subject to 21st century psychological um, operation, uh, operations by the hyper-militarized region there. Okay, now um, what I am saying is, uh, uh, system dynamics, can you all concentrate on system dynamics when you look at any problem solving? Thank you. Thank you. Um, I'm sharing some of Paolo's discomfort, actually. It's a bit like, bit like a therapy session. <laughs> two, two of the instances in my career, I worked for DFID and I worked really hard to improve DFID's performance management system, the way we scored and we rolled it out across DFID. My discomfort now is what happens if the projects we worked really hard to score better were the wrong projects. Second incarnation, as I was a unit accountant in a hospital, in one level we ran the hospital brilliantly by pushing all the costs onto the community in terms of drugs, um, you know, as people were discharged from ho hospital, rather than the hospital paying for the drugs, we pushed them down to the community. So the hospital ran really well but whether the health system for that community ran really hell, different question. And I suppose where I would put in terms of the title of our session, I think it is about promoting accountability for results. And I just wonder whether promoting accountability for service delivery, if service delivery is not delivering the results, that's not the right thing to be doing, I think. Just a quick one to say I, I fully agree with Paolo. I mean, the, the way I see it is that it's really a reversal in where you're starting from that needs to be operated. I'm not talking about accountability for results now, but really about what kind of PFM system do you need to actually support service delivery. I think the first thing to do is to look at what services um, need to be delivered, and they are not all the same in health, clearly. They're also not all the same in education. There are different levels of, different types of services that need to be delivered. Who are the actors that are involved, um, need to be involved, are involved, both? Um, what um, needs to be there for the services to be delivered? What kind of inputs are needed? Who among the actors are best placed to decide about these inputs and how they're provided and why, and then only you can think about what kind of PFM systems are needed to deliver that or to support that. Certainly that's something I've felt since a long time. It's been really made clearer in this session. Um, so thanks for that. Okay, um, thank you. So what I'm gonna ask um, the speakers to do is take on some of those questions, but also if they have any closing points they would like to highlight from from the um, presentations from the discussion um, also also ask them to do that just in a in a minute or two um, each so um, let's just go down the line but actually let's reverse the order so let's start with Dan and we'll finish we'll finish with Ivor yeah so um, I uh, am totally on board the kind of uh, joint therapy session uh, new tools uh, you know, I'm happy to share the cost of counseling, you know, uh, you know, burden sharing, et cetera. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, and I, I think, to me, the center of the answer is uh, a bit what Ivor said about sectors, right? So we've spent most of our time here talking about a sector that's particularly data rich, 
where we can figure out what's going on with pretty quick cycles, right? We know whether health is getting better or worse, at least relative to a lot of other, uh, other sectors. And uh, Luis's question, in which he talked about the, uh, the gray areas, right? And I, I would take a different position. So, you know, Luis was interested in uh, shrinking those gray areas, right? Uh, I want to think about when the gray areas are part of the solution rather than part of the problem, right? When we need to kind of live with complexity and ambiguity and make as much sense of it as we can. And how PFM systems can do something other than try to clarify ambiguity, but rather kind of support better decision making when there are not clear answers and good data. So PFM, it seems to me the PFM community, ministries of finance traditionally are about getting as much clarity as possible without recognizing that actually opacity is not a bug even though it can of course lead to bad things. I'm not saying it is always good. Uh, it also can be a feature. And thinking about how PFM can support those gray areas, can build better decision processes around those gray areas, can build account-based accountability where people are talking to each other, seeing things rather than relying entirely on data and reporting and information and accounting uh, is to me uh, an important frontier in uh, promoting accountability for results. Thank you. Yeah, there was a very um, specific Nigeria question, which I think in many ways um, um, captures what I was trying to present about how often decentralization comes on top of existing inequities. So my suspicion um, about states within sort of within state uh, inequities in, in, um, in, in immunization coverage, for example, will very likely be between rural and urban communities, very likely between richer and poorer communities, very likely between um, local government um, capital and state capital, and also very likely um, in some states because those states have um, more um, deliberately decentralized within themselves. So for example, Jigawa State has a, its own formula for decentralizing health, and so you'd find interesting variations in performance, but generally Jigawa performs better than most northern states because it takes health seriously. So you find that kind of variation within and between northern states. Um, yeah, I'll stop there. Do you want to highlight anything, anything else? No, I, th I think my point has been very okay. well reverberated. On the um, the the sort of the anguish and populism kind of comments and the last <laughs> round, um, the. Um, <laughs> The, I, 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 what it, it, the, thought, the stream of thought it triggered in me is some reflections I have about how accountability um, mechanisms um, and other performance driving mechanisms are working currently in the National Health Service in England, um, which has sort of been a big part of my work focus recently. Um, and I, I, I think there is, you, you do find two different traditions of accountability and viewpoints. Uh, around accountability in the NHS. There's the soft, people who like the soft mechanisms and people who, who uh, basically think that, you know, targets and terror have their place and are necessary. Um, but I think there's a, there is a, even among people who can know there's a place for both and, 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 and are sort of thoughtful and reflective about how you use both, I think there's a view that in, in, this, in the kind of accountability regime we have in the UK, where accountability at the chief executive or chief accounting officer level is very tough, 
um, if a chief executive um, has to go, and we get rid of them at quite a pace, um, it's, it's usually um, for reasons that were you know, not in their control or influence to any material degree. And so there's a kind of informal mechanism by which the health service decides, you know, if, yes, so-and-so may have to fall on their sword and we may have to send them down the road, but they're a terrific manager. They're one of the best we've got. So how can we kind of rehabilitate them, bring them back and then promote them? Um, or if they're really bad, how do we, you know, let, we, we think we know who are the really bad managers who we do need to move out of the system and, and if they're at, at very high levels we can do that by putting them in the House of Lords, an option that's not available in every country. Um, the, um, so, but, but there is, I think the thing, we, that, the thing that, we, that isn't usually discussed much in the PFM fraternity, but it's an enormous part of what we work on and think about in the health system and the, in the Health Foundation, which is research program is one of the people, one of the agencies that focuses on it, is um, in that, that very complex environment, the um, sort of internal, internal culture, professional motivation, professionalisation and tapping um, team working and all those kinds of things, getting a culture of service improvement, quality improvement and all of that is, is, is the thing that we have to do to really drive service improvement. Targets and terror, actually this I'll finish with a quotation from Alan Melbourne, who I worked for when when targets and terror were used in a so very... Just to explain, Alan Melbourne was a... Um, Secretary Minister of State of Health. for Health. Yeah. He really used targets and terror to improve the NHS's performance on things like long waits for surgery and long waits in A&E departments. He, um, quote from him, he said, I know that with my, the, my targets regime and re, you know, really driving targets hard, I can maybe achieve three things in, one or, in, in, in a hospital or another healthcare provider. And that, that healthcare provider is doing thousands of things. And I need them to do thousands of things well and to improve on the thousands of things. And we can't do that with the targets and terror, the external controls. Um, and, the, and so what he was looking for was a, a, was a kind of systemic story about all of the different levers we could use to somehow drive the thousands of things to improve and not just the three things. Um, reflecting on the comments about accountability and being careful about what language you use I think is important. Um, I mean just at a very practical level going to different countries and talking about performance budgeting people understand different things when you, you throw around this word accountability and unless you break it down into accountability to who, for what, etc., um, people can misinterpret it. Um, and if you go to Russia or Kazakhstan, they'll be see that as accountability as the type of, uh, you know, uh, shooting, taking you out and shooting you behind the shed if you don't... Uh, I mean, I think what, what um, the discussion has showed is that uh, nuancing is... is, is very important in these kind of discussions and balance um, and uh, what you can achieve you know uh, people are complaining about you know centralized budgeting systems and things like that that's what I hear you know a populist revol revolt as them um, but uh, this thing isn't going away you know there is going to be a unified centralized budgeting system and it's not going to pick up on the needs of every sector um, I think what performance, what we've learned in performance budgeting, though, is a one-size-fits-all approach definitely does not work. 
you know, that some, you need to have different modulated approaches to deal with different sectors. I mean, the business of government is extremely diverse and very complicated. And the financial relationships are very diverse and very complicated. I mean, if you've got, you may be, you know, the ministry may just be responsible for regulating a sector. It may be just making transfers to a sector. Or the spending may be driven by entitlements and legal provisions, not by, you know, any real budgetary decision making. So whatever system you have has to be able to recognize that and, and accommodate it. And the accountability mechanisms that you set up for individual managers need to be kind of sensitive to that reality. And I think where it works best is where, you know, you have a kind of team team environment and the responsibility is collective and you have processes whereby you bring together the people who have responsibility for budget and the financial side of it and the operational side of it in a to have a constructive conversation on a regular basis you know about how can we you know use the financial resources that we have to help you achieve the results so. thank you Ivor. i want to thank all all the panelists for what i found an incredibly interesting and stimulating session and i think um from the from the uh, questions and comments, I think you did as well, and hopefully um, it has sort of inspired the need to look at this further rather than um, uh, lie down on the couch and close our eyes. Um, I, I just want to end with um, kind of sort of three of the points that I would I would take away from this, which is you know the the kind of premise that we started was that you know different types of service delivery reform require different supporting PFM reforms. And I think, I think that's been echoed. And the, the task is to go beyond that and think about what, what that actually means in practice and what it means in different sectors. And I think one thing, one theme that has gone through is the kind of task complexity of, different, of delivering different services. And maybe we need to think harder about um, how a PFM system interacts with that and how the, the kind of broader management matches with the, with the financial management. Um, and I, I liked Ivor's last point there of saying that, you know, a, a way of reframing that question is that this is not about, um, you know, that there needs to be uh, a central budget system that run by the Ministry of Finance, and that's always going to be there. Um, and, and there's, you know, there's good fiscal control reasons why that's always going to be there. And we, we need to forget that, we, uh, we need to not forget that, you know, if you lose fiscal control, it's the poorest and it's the service delivery that often suffers, suffers the most. Um, so, so there is a question of, you know, how do you reflect the different needs of different sectors, but also acknowledge that, you know, one sector is never going to be able to drive reform in the way that it absolutely wants because we've got to accommodate the needs of, of different sectors. And I think that's a really, a really um, uh, nice, nice point to, to finish on and that we need to take further. I, I also would just like to re-echo... Um, uh, Say's point um, that he, he kind of started off with, which, you know, when we're looking at um, uh, taking reforms across different contexts, let's start with the assumption that the reform won't work here and then think about how it won't work rather than saying, oh, that works nicely over there. Let's see if it can work here. Let's start with assumptions that reforms won't work and challenge ourselves to really think about, you know, if we are going to make them work, what needs to be done. Um, and lastly, I, on, on Dan's point about account-based accountability, um, and I, I suggested that that was maybe kind of foreign to the to the um, uh, 
sort of public finance um, community. But I, I want to finish on reflecting that actually there, there is one area where we, we completely make use of that, that type of accountability, which is that most countries have a system of budget hearings between uh, finance ministry and line ministries, where line ministries are called to come and defend their budget allocations and demonstrate what they're trying to achieve. And, you know, that is not something that is always done just purely by numbers and metrics. It's about a conversation and a dialogue um, and, and being able to defend what you're, what you're aiming to do. And I think that is very much account-based accountability. And we should maybe be thinking about other areas within the public finance system where that type of accountability um, can be used further. Um, and maybe lastly, I'll just end on saying that um, uh, I, I probably wouldn't recommend having, I think, the largest upper chamber in the world as a way to um, get rid of your bad public sector managers um, as, as being a reform that should go anywhere else. So, thank you all very much. Um, let's break for coffee. Um, we have shortened it a bit, but let's try and be back here. Um, by let's say um, 11.35 so they're only starting five minutes late. Okay, thank you. Thank you for listening. For more ODI live event podcasts, find us on SoundCloud or subscribe to the Overseas Development Institute podcasts via iTunes.